It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Cathcart. Nice to be here. Thank you. Jim, you're a, uh, for those listening, you're a good looking rooster. As they say, <laughs> and hardly a threatening debt collector. But having dug through the archives of Jim Cathcart, I came to learn through a video on YouTube that exists, which I'll link in the show notes, which I think people need to see, that you were a hard ass bill collector at one point. Can you tell us well, about that? Yeah, I used to repossess log trucks in the Ozark Mountains in the northern <laughs> part of Arkansas. And I was a field representative for General Motors Acceptance Corporation, GMAC. And my job was to go out and track down the people that hadn't been paying payments on their uh, logging trucks. So you can imagine what kind of people I encountered. So I had to go back in the woods and track them down and get them to make a payment or give me the keys to the truck. You learn fast how to stay alive. Right? Would you would you mind sharing some of that story that you shared in that video that I'm sure I presume you know I'm talking about the well, lesson because the lesson's really what I'm I'm looking for here. It's so good, and it really is a lesson that became a life lesson for me. I discovered it by accident, just simply by trying to survive. Uh, but uh, I'll get to the lesson. This was Mountain View, Arkansas, and it, the year was. Oh, 68, I think, 1968. I was 22 years old. I'll save you the math. In 2023, I'll be 77. Uh, So 22-year-old kid, rosy cheeks, black hair, lots of it, and a baby face. And what I'm doing for a living is repossessing log trucks from the big hair-covered creatures that drive them. And uh, I would go out like this one day in Mountain View. I went back in the woods in my company car, bumping along this rutted out road, found the truck. And I got out of the car and walked over to the truck. And this big creature climbed out of it and looked down his nose at me because he was about a foot and a half taller than I was. And I said, I'm here to get your truck. (laughs) He said... (laughs) Boy, I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but we're alone in the woods. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, so why don't you go away and leave me alone? I said, absolutely. I said, I will go away. But you do need to understand that I'm the last nice guy. 
they plan to send. And this guy said, what do you mean? I said, well, after this, because you didn't give me a payment or the truck, um, I go back and tell them I've done all I can do. And they turn it over to the sheriff and he comes out here with guns. And something bad happens. Either you lose a truck or somebody, you know, gets into an altercation. And he said, well, what are my options? And I said, of course, the way I tell it, I, say, I said to him, set the gun down. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> that was almost literally true because every single person I collected off of out in those woods was armed. No exceptions. They're alone in the woods. What are they going to do? They've got a shotgun, a rifle, a handgun or something. And so I said to this guy, look, here are your options. You can give me a partial payment and I'll be gone for a week. You can give me a full payment. I'll be gone for a month. You can work out paying this thing off and I'll leave you alone for the rest of your life. Or if you have no other option, you can drive the truck back to the dealer and, you know, turn it in. And the guy said, well, here, and he threw me the keys. And I said, well, I can't drive that thing. He said, no longer my problem. I said, well, yeah, it kind of is. Because if I take it and, and I go find somebody and bring them back out here and we drive it and turn it in, you live here and you see the dealer in town every week or two. And in the future, when you see the dealer that you bought this from, you will avert your eyes and walk on the other side of the street because you'll feel ashamed. And he will look at you and resent you because you didn't make your payments. Or you could drive it back to the dealer and walk in and say, hey, Laban, I'm sorry, I can't do it right now and give him the keys. And then I'll give you a ride home. And the next time you're in town and you see the dealer, you retain your dignity. And the two of you greet each other as normal citizens, your choice. So what I figured out to do in that moment that helped me survive ended up being a life lesson. There's two things in, in every relationship, tension and trust, and they never are side by side. They're, one's always higher than the other. So if you can reduce the tension in a situation, trust will tend to grow. You can't control the trust. You can only control the tension or remove the tension. Um, and that applies to sales, couples relations between man and woman, you know, to every kind of situation you can think of. That's a life principle, not just a technique for bill collecting. Fantastic, John. I, that video on YouTube was 10 years old at least. No, oh, at and, least maybe twenty, and I presume well, it was, it was being... twenty. It was it was in the nineteen hundreds, <laughs> back in the old days. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, it just it really res and the story goes on as well, um, which people can go and watch the rest of it maybe because you had a you left that job and then someone came in who was incompetent. Oh, at, yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah. maybe you could maybe you could finish. Are you happy to finish off the story with Pete? Sure, sure. So when I left that job, the guy who took over after me was Pete Smith. And Pete Smith made a serious tactical error. He went directly from the Marine Corps to bill collecting. 
So you can imagine he comes out of combat training and goes into bill collecting with what attitude? Combat training. And so he would go out and, and boldly announce himself as the guy who was there to collect the bill or the payment. And he got resistance from almost everybody. And he called on this one guy named Monroe. And uh, I had been calling on Monroe for months and I always got something, a little payment or partial payment, something. Um, well, Pete decided it was time to clean up the account. So he went out, announced himself. Monroe steps onto the porch where Pete was standing. And it turns out Mon Monroe's more bad than Pete is bad. And so Pete was beaten to a pulp. I mean, reduced to a quivering lump of flesh on the porch of Monroe's house. And he had to go to the hospital and was in it for two weeks recovering from that beating. I mean, that's severe. Typically a person's in a hospital just a day or two for repair. He was in there for recovery. And um, I looked at that and I thought, wow, same guy I was calling on, same purpose. Completely different results. He got no money. I always got some money. What was the difference in the two of us? And it certainly wasn't our education. It wasn't our size. It wasn't, you know, wasn't any tactic like that. The difference was I approached it as a partner in problem solving. He approached it as an adversary. He was there to make that guy do his bidding. And it didn't work. And that same thing's true if you're raising kids. You can be their partner in problem solving, or you can be their, their jailer, you know, forcing them, telling them what to do and not engaging them in the process. Like one time my son, I, I was in a bad mood and I snapped at him. I, I you know, I, I don't remember what I said, but it was just mean spirited. And we were driving in the car. And I drove for maybe another mile and then I pulled over. My wife was in the car with me. And so I pulled over, turned off the key and I got out of the car and I said, Jimmy, come here. And he thought, oh my God, I'm gonna get a spanking. So I walk around behind the car, he gets out and he comes back there, you know, ready to be whacked. And uh, I said, I owe you an apology. what? I said, I was way too harsh back then. You didn't deserve that. I was being mean because of how I felt. And I thought about it. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it like that. Well, that's okay, Dad. <laughs> well, come here. You're gonna give me a hug. And we got back in the car and went our way. If you approach things in the right way, you can get almost anything done. If you approach it in the wrong way, you create adversaries where there weren't any. It's like if you force your kids to do things, the forcing after the first couple of times will make them feel oppressed and then they will feel they will find a way to rebel, to respond inappropriately and get even with you, so to speak. I wish my parents had had access to you when they were younger. <laughs> <laughs> I think and, uh, we wish all parents had access to those ideas. Yeah. Right. I'm holding up one of Jim's. How many books is it now, Jim? 20, 30, 
Uh, 23 published, 27 written. 27 written. Of audio books in the pipeline. This is, this is, I'm holding up Relationship Selling, which has been signed by Jim Cathcart, which is amazing. Um, which is, touches on exactly what Jim's sharing earlier. So I like, if you want to, if you want to figure out this stuff in very, very straightforward terms, it's a must read book. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking about this, Jim, I'm so blessed to be able to call you a, a pal, a friend, right? And back at you, mate. Thanks. Right. Well, and, that, and that means a huge amount to me. And what's, what's even cooler is that going through my archives of things that I've been studying and learning, like, I was drawing upon Jim Cathcart, genius, long before we even met. And how we even connected was not a, a deliberate attempt to try and reach you. It was kind of, you know, through, through a dear friend. Coincidental through John Mitchell. Yeah. Right. So a big shout out to John and Ginger Mitchell. But it, it's like I, I drew upon you, Les Brown, I think there was the odd Tony Robbins take back in the early days because mm -hmm. in New Zealand, we only had three television channels until the late 1990s at one point. Um, I think, I forget, cable, cable maybe came in when I was about 14 because I remember Red Shoe Diaries was a thing, uh, which was softcore porn for those who are curious with David Duchovny. And, um, and they had the late night infomercials and Tony Robbins was doing his thing. but but I came across your stuff and it's, it, I'm so pleased to be able to, to, for you to witness my journey. We've known each other for nearly, well, over about a year now, I think almost. Yeah. And uh, seeing your growth, you, you say you're 77 later this year. Yep. Right. You've got the energy of a 27 year old. <laughs> a, a question for you is what advice would you give a 27 year old Jim Cathcart? I would say send more money ahead to me, the 77-year-old Jim Cathcart. <laughs> Seriously, you know, th that was something that the friend told me long ago. He said, send a portion of what you're earning today ahead to the person you're going to be later on when your earning window is not as, not as wide or as long. And that's, that's darn good advice because the pay yourself first concept that was from the book, Richest Man in Babylon by George Clayson um, it is a brilliant concept. And you've just got to get in the habit of taking a portion of what you bring in, a tiny portion at first, and just set it aside in a forever account that you're never going to touch. You're not building it up to buy a car, buy a house, buy whatever. That's a forever account that'll never be touched. Why would I want money I never touch? So that you have money. So the difference between people who have a lot of money and people who don't is not how much they used to earn. It's how much of it they kept and put it in a place wisely that it would, you know, be able to, to uh, be safe and grow. So not money you speculate with. Like when I was teaching my son, I, I taught him, you have a put and take account at the bank. You put this much money in, you take money out when you need it. And then you have a forever account that you only put money in. And that way, if anything disastrous ever occurs, or if you decide I'm tired of working, 
I want working to be an option, not an obligation, then you've got that option because there's enough money to live off of. Yeah, it's it's great advice. Uh, one of the one of the the areas of interest I wanted to to dig a little deeper with you today, Jim, was one of your most viewed videos is a TEDx talk you did. I think it's a couple of million views now. 2.6, right? But one of the other most viewed videos, uh, your your speech is dubbed into Arabic. Do you know what's happening there? <laughs> I do. I do. I, I, I was contacted by a company a few years ago called Kun, K-U-N Academy in Dubai. And they said, we want to be able to produce training programs with you, but it, it's going to be dubbed over in Arabic for our audience. And so I agreed to that and we did that. But then there are some that have been, I guess, pirated uh, in a friendly way. Not that they've sent me any money or asked my permission, but they didn't do me any harm. They just gave me a bigger audience by putting another voice in there. I did a, a series of programs for a company called uh, Crestcom. Um, they produce a series that they call the Bulletproof Manager. And they had it translated into some enormous number, like 83 languages. They had it overdubbed. And they sent me a video with a summary of that. Wow. To see myself talking and hear this coming across instead. It's kind of a strange experience. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And I know you've done a number of talks uh, over in, in, I presume, in Mandarin. Yeah. That have been translated to Mandarin or, yeah. and Cantonese, I suppose. Yeah. Depending on where you are in China. Depending on where I was in China, but most of yeah. it was Mandarin. And I had a translator when I, I, from 2015 to 2019, I toured China, 19 separate trips. And they were lecture tours from city to city to city, all of them big cities, major cities, uh, 23 major cities, and every audience was in the thousands. And I spoke through an interpreter. So I would stand up and say, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And my interpreter would say, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, you know, ni hao. Ni hao mai, yeah. yeah, right? yeah. And, and so I had to learn to speak in paragraphs even when I was telling stories or jokes. And that became quite a skill. At first it was awkward as could be, but after a while, I'd say, bring another. So this is a good question to ask, like what's a really great way to convey feeling to people that don't speak your language? Cause you know, I live in Mexico and I meet my Spanish is on the up and up, but I still poquito, right? Yeah. How, but but I can I can successfully in most cases translate like communicate with people using my emotion and effects yeah. and hand signals. What what's some tips and advice well, you give this. people? Think of this: vivo vi, v e v o v i, verbal, vocal, visual. Verbal is your words. Vocal is your sounds. Visual is your actions. Right. When you don't have mastery of the verbal, then you rely on those other two, the vocal and visual. And 
I could say, let's say you had approached me and you speak only Spanish. And you say, hablo usted español. And I say, un poquito, little, little. <laughs> and what did I just say? I said, a very, very little, right? But I said it in such a way that it's playful, like I'm trying, but I'm definitely not there yet, you know? So... <laughs> How did the how did the jokes land in ones were converted into Mandarin? Well, th that's interesting, and, and let's let's broaden it from just Mandarin. I was I was the keynote speaker for Harley Davidson motorcycles for their 100 year convention, and they had 1,500 Harley dealers from all over the world fly into Orlando, Florida, and they were there for three or four days. And there were seven different languages being translated. And I was the keynote speaker on the main stage. And so I, I met with all of the translators, my request, uh, ahead of time. And I said, here's what I'm going to talk about. And I don't have a script, but I know I'm going to tell this story, this story, and this story. And I'm going to use this visual. And it has two parts. And the second part's funny. And... So I walked them through what the story was about, how I was telling it, what the punchline was, and why that was funny. And the, I remember the two Japanese interpreters, they were talking to themselves, and then they said, excuse me, teacher, well, that's not funny in Japanese. <laughs> okay, well, here's the idea behind it. And they went, okay, we know how to tell it, so it'll be funny. Great. So that way you don't have the awkward pause where you deliver a punchline, then you wait, and they deliver a punchline, then you wait. Ah, and there's your laugh, you know. No. But I worked it out with Kitty, my interpreter in China, and I spent oh, easily 100 hours coaching her on how to think American and how I could think Chinese. And so we found our sweet spot and got to where we could do it. One time in a major speech, she delivered a line before I delivered it because she knew where I was going. And it wasn't a punchline. It was a key point. And so I did my part and I waited and she did her part plus, And I went, I didn't say that yet. She said, I know, you know, and then we went on. And later she said, did I do something wrong? I said, no, you just did something that didn't work. I said, there are certain things that if you wait before you say them, they have more meaning. And if you take out that gap, then it changes the meaning of the, of the message. Ah, it's like, I'm not ready to do that yet versus i'm not ready to do that yet big difference quite a difference in the emphasis there yeah. right so if you think of pauses as words there are words like a and and the and there are words like anti-disestablishmentarianism easy for me to say um well the same thing's true for pauses there's a pause and there's a pause and then there's a pause. And every one of them has a different effect.
if you're consuming this and you're thinking to yourself, man, this guy's such a great storyteller. I wonder what he does for a living. This guy, I'm struggling to find anyone on this planet that has more accolades in the speaking space than, than Jim Cathcart. Golden Gavel Award winner. So other winners include General Schwarzkopf, well, Les I've been, Brown. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been on some privileged platforms. Right. Yeah, Tony Robbins, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, uh, Earl Nightingale, Walter Cronkite, the, the news reporter from back in the 60s and 70s, um, Zig Ziglar, Nito Kubain, Jeannie Robertson. Those are other Golden Gavel winners, yeah. Which, Not which winners, is, actually, recipients. Because a winner achieved an award. You know, it's like you won the gold medal, but you get the golden gavel. They choose you and bestow it upon you because they think you're an excellent example of the kind of communication that they want their members, Toastmasters International members, to uh, develop. President, former president of the National Speakers Association. Like that, like people can learn more about you. But the reason why I wanted to bring you on, Jim, is that that there's so much value in learning how to communicate effectively, right? And in a world that's that's going more and more digital, you know, with the work that I'm doing now, teaching people how to bring big name guests onto their podcasts without a big audience, and I do it fundamentally from ringing the person involved. I don't send many emails or texts or DMs because I find certainly the most effective way to get through to anyone quickly because I'm quite inherently lazy, I think, in the best way possible. I just want to get fast outcomes. So that's that's what drove that is to speak to people. Do you have any thoughts to add to that? Yeah. First off, consider it targeted laziness. So it's intentional. It's not, um, it's not uh, negligent. You know, laziness is typically seen as negligence. You just, you should be doing something, you're not doing it. Well, if you think of what you do, it's, you are definitely not lazy. You're one of the hardest workers I know. And you work on what matters. That's the key. It's like my former business partner and my best friend even today, Dr. Tony Alessandra. People look at his life, if you're simply observing him day to day, you say, well, gee, I mean, he takes a lot of time for himself. He takes time, you know, go for long walks with his wife. He, he takes time to, to go work out. He, he reads the newspaper, works crossword puzzles and things like that, Sudoku. Yeah, but he's doing what he chooses to do for a reason. Because when he gets up in the morning, he doesn't go for a cup of coffee. He goes to check his accounts and to balance the books and to make sure everything that was supposed to happen did happen. And then he sends out the initial communications that need to nudge those results along the pipeline. And then he gets his cup of coffee and his breakfast, right? So he's, you could say he's lazy, but he's not. What it is is targeted laziness or targeted um, leisure, I guess you might, might call it. But why is he doing Sudoku and crossword puzzles? to keep his math and language and, and rational thinking skills and creativity at the edge where he needs them to be. So if you don't, if all you do is just watch TV, 
and and when you take time off it's literally time off not doing anything useful then you don't have any edge when you go back like when i choose to take a break from work instead of going in the other room and reading a novel i pick up my guitar and practice songs i haven't played or sang in a long time without looking at the sheet music or the lyrics to see how much of it I can remember and how well I can perform it. And then I put my guitar back on the wall and my guitars literally are on the wall. And um, other times I'm relaxing with a book that like your book, you know, encourage. And, and I look at that as a form of leisure rather than just vegging and listening to music. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's, you got me thinking, like, uh, I will always read the books of my guests. And not like, depending on, I didn't get through all of yours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but like, not many people I know have written close to 30 books, right? Um, but, but by doing that, I'm killing about nine birds with one stone, because I'm, I'm researching and respecting my guest. And I've had some wonderful feedback from some of your colleagues about the fact that I'd taken the time to read their books when a lot of people mm -hmm. won't, right? That's a personal choice. It's fine. I get to read the book. I get to research the person. I get to learn the knowledge because they're almost always motivational, inspirational, transformational books. Yeah. It's, and, and every book that I read, and I reckon, Jim, I'm at about 650 over the last five years now. And I used to read one a year if I was like most people read about half a book a year. Is that it? Yeah. Wow. Most most college graduates never again read another text. I that's unbelievable. I heard CEOs read about a book a month, which is like seems to me like pretty well. Lazy. You know, that's it. you got to categorize that because there are millions of CEOs in the in the world. Not all of them are effective. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like business owners do X. Well, but yeah, wait a minute. The, the guy over there that sells melons on the side of the road is a business owner. And the guy who runs Subway Sandwiches Corporation is a business owner. And the franchisee who own, owns the local Subway franchise is a business owner. Uh, so business owner doesn't say the same thing. Same thing with CEO. Because CEOs of, of one-person corporations or of huge enterprises, but highly effective business leaders tend to be readers. Leaders are readers. And not necessarily like my son is a, is a uh, resort manager, general manager of a, of a luxury resort in California. And he rarely reads books, but he always every day commuting to and from work listens to books so he's buying audio books by the pound almost whereas physical books not so much yeah there's no excuse really these days is there to to not consume books yeah. and i i will never know the the ultimate impact of reading so much but it's what I think's happened to me is still happening to me is it allows you to become very well-rounded 
Which I don't know. How would you describe the effect of compounding interest? Yeah, it makes you very aware of many, many, many things that you'd never have been exposed to through your own life experience alone. And what I've done over the years, I've read so many hundreds of books like yourself, that every year or two, I will have an abundance of books with no place to put them. And so I go to the local whatever and donate them as the Cathcart Institute Leadership Library. I did that at California Lutheran University Center for Entrepreneurship. I did that in the Ventura County Community Foundation. I've done that for other entities over the years. Uh, when I lived in La Jolla, San Diego, California, you know, I, I went down to the local library and donated a, a big chunk of, of um, all types of books. But it's just books are so easy, you know, and, and so enjoyable. Why would a person not want to cultivate the habit of reading more books. And, and you say, well, I don't have time to read. Yeah, you do. You have exactly the same amount of time I do. You don't choose to allocate your time the way I allocate mine. Let's compete and see who, who's busier. You, the person giving the excuse, or me, the person who's made time to read. Hmm. It's not what? time management, as my friend Maura Thomas says. It's attention management. What are you going to put your attention on? Yeah, amen, brother. Well, I know just through doing some research, Jim, the number one show on Netflix last year, uh, I forget the name, had 58 million watch hours, right? Like 58 million hours of watch time. Wow. And so that's, and it was fiction. It wasn't going to improve you. Like yeah. it was just garbage, right? And hey, I occasionally, there's not a lot left on Netflix now that's not woke AF. So like I found some um, some stuff on Amazon Prime that you can actually dig down. I started watching Top Gun, the new one again. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> it's a great well, movie. Yeah. But um, what if you had to, this might be a tough question for you, Jim. If you had to recommend three books to someone that had no clue about professional personal development and they weren't your books, what would they be? First one would be The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino. And Og wrote many, many books. He was a friend of mine. And Jim's turning to his extensive book cabinet by the way, for people listening to this. These are books by Ogmandino. That's what he looked like. His name he's, was Augustine Mandino. Wow, he's got just book after book after book here. He's passed away now? Yeah, he passed away. He passed away at age 76. One day I asked him, I was in, a, in his audience at the National Speakers Association meeting in, in Arizona. And I said, of all your books, what was your favorite? And which one had the biggest impact on your career or your life? He said, well, Jimmy, <laughs> and I don't go by Jimmy, but that's what he called me. He said, you've read all my books. What is your favorite? 
and which one had the biggest impact on your life? I said, well, my favorite is the Christ Commission. And the one that had the biggest impact on my life was the greatest salesman in the world. Long pause. And he said, me too. Wow. Wow. I mean, I count it as profound just that he knows me, you know, or knew me. That's cool. Jim's just showing up a, a signed autograph copy, much in the, in the way that I've got a copy of yours here, Jim. There you go. If um, if 30 years from now... No, wait. Oh, <laughs> he's got more. Second. second book. Live a thousand years. <laughs> Giovanni, Giovanni Levera. Never heard Giovanni of it. Giovanni Levera is a magician, an entertainer, a guy who used to do the halftime show audience engagement for the Orlando Magic basketball games. I mean, the guy is just an explosion of energy and wisdom and joy. And he wrote this book like a, like a Disney movie. And it's, it, it takes a guy through a whole bunch of life situations and has him making choices that put more life in his years. Not necessarily only more years in his life, but more life in his years. But get a copy of this, and it's Live a Thousand Years by Giovanni Libero. Live a Thousand Years. Yep. And the third Number one. Number three. I'm going to, I reckon I know what this is. This one's really, really well written. The Compound Effect by uh, Darren Hardy. Yep. I was going to guess something else. Why is that? Why is that Compound Effect book so good? Because it's so well written, it's, I don't mean written words, I mean, the ideas are presented in a really good way that anybody could read that and say, oh, well, then I could do this big thing I've been wanting to do. Now I see that it's possible. By the way, my latest book, I only have one little tiny piece in this book. This came out like four days ago. Oh, chicken soup for the soul. The advice that changed my life. Available on all, in all good bookstores, huh? Yep. And uh, mine is on page 120 and 21 and 22. It's just a little story about when I heard Earl Nightingale on the radio years ago. And that radio broadcast inspired me to change my life. So for people that don't know, the Chicken Soup for the Soul book series, there's more than 200 variations now, I think, Jim, if I'm not mistaken. And they are and compilations. And it's the best-selling nonfiction book series in the history of the printed word. That is. And I knew Jack Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen before the first one. And they, we were at Book Expo America, big book, uh, book publishers, world event and uh, i was there signing autographs for my my book relationship selling and paula and i my wife paula and i ran into jack canfield and mark victor hansen they said hey we got a great new book idea we've been to a bunch of publishers and been turned down but this is going to go the distance and, and we said okay what is it and they said chicken soup for the soul yeah that's good 
No, no, really. Here's how it works. And they explained it. And we thought, well, good for them. Well, it has now generated a billion dollars <laughs> plus in revenues. Oh, my gosh. Outsold everything but the Bible virtually. Wow. That, that story is amazing. And, uh, we, and you can go through the archives and have a look at the interviews that I've done with both of those gentlemen as well. Um, the, and I think a large number of the books they've sold are from the schooling system in China as well, Jim, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Well, you know what's interesting is in China, there's an enormous, enormous piracy of books. If you publish a book in China, the day it comes out, it will be pirated and sold the next day. And you'll never see any royalties. Dennis Waitley one time had written a book called The Joy of Work. And someone in China picked it up and it became a bestseller for the, for the pirating company. And someone came to Dennis and they said, hey, your book's a bestseller in China. He said, I haven't even had it translated. Oh, yes, you have. <laughs> Wow. So I've got books in China, but the way I get paid on my books in China is up front. Every time you print, you pay me. Don't, don't worry about what happens out there. That's so interesting. The, uh, the other accolade that I didn't include in there just yet is that you're a Hall of Fame, a marketing Hall of Fame speaker, which people like Zig Ziglar. You want to throw some other yep. names in there as well? Yep. Yep, that's that was an enormous honor. Tony Alessandra, Tom Hopkins, Zig Ziglar, people like that. It's it's a very small group. Uh, I think Jeffrey Gittimer's in there. Uh, Don Hudson is in there. Um, I don't remember. I haven't looked at it in a while, but it was such an honor. Jonathan Farrington founded a company called Top Sales World and published a magazine called Top Sales top sales magazine and um, he passed away recently and Jacqueline Male, who was his right arm took it over and it, uh, I was featured in February 2023 issue on the cover feature article of top sales magazine worldwide and that's um, the, the title of that one is how to hold a grand reopening because so many businesses have cut back during COVID and not yet fully reemerged. So the article is about what can you do to explode back into the marketplace, whether you've been in business a long time or you're brand new. But anyway, that company, Top Sales World, is the one that bestowed the Sales and Marketing uh, Hall of Fame Awards in London. For context, I believe, you, please correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, there's less than 250 ever inductees in the, in the Speaker Hall of Fame across all categories, living and dead. Is that right? Yeah. So, the National Speakers Association Speaker Hall of Fame, which is called Council of Peers Award for Excellence, CPAE. Yeah, so... To appreciate having access to someone like Jim, who unfortunately won't be around forever, but will live on in infamy through his books and through these interviews. If someone comes across this interview a hundred years from now, Jim, wow, 
Uh, like, that's possible. Isn't that right. amazing? Right. That's actually possible. Yeah. It is, unless a big EMP hits the earth at some point. But assuming yeah. they do, what's, what's, how would you describe the current state of your world to them? Ooh, uh, first I have to think of what limits, you know, commenting on the world itself. Like, look like, at my world, I'll take it as mine. They, okay. have, they have no access to any other history data. Your, this interview is the only thing they have access to, to 2023. All right. 2023, uh, at this point in societal evolution, humans had discovered that they have the ability to transform their own lives and choose the direction in which they evolve. Prior to this, most of it was about survival or figuring things out in the first place. By this time, humanity had figured out how much of the world works. There's still plenty of mystery out there, but we understand things about the cellular level of biology, about the interpersonal relations between people, about how societies and families and companies and cultures evolve, about how technology can be made to work in such a way that that people can use it to enlarge their life and reduce their problems. So that's the point we're at in human existence. And I have chosen over my 46 year plus career in the field of human development to focus on the, the whole concept of applied behavioral science. How do you study and understand human behavior in such a way that you can choose how you want your life to evolve and you can help other people do the same. How'd I do? What a wonderful, wonderful, that's way better than I thought it was going to be. And I knew it was going to be good. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Jim, how do people get a hold of you apart from burying their head in the sand? Just remember two words, Jim Cathcart. And the way to find me, you know, go to my website, free.cathcart.com. Why would I begin with the word free? Because I have a gift. And what is the gift? The gift is a, is a book that I wrote that has 54 different short lessons on how to do what professional speakers do when you're leading meetings or giving presentations or doing sales talks or whatever it happens to be. And it's a free download so people can go to that landing page. And then from there, they can watch videos and click through and, you know, discover all the, the wonders of the world of Cathcart. Fantastic. Thank you. You know what I do today? I, I've called myself for 40 plus years a professional speaker and author, and I am. But what I do today more than anything else is I mentor experts and entrepreneurs. I teach people how to become a certified professional expert and Cathcart Institute literally bestows that. So at cathcart.com slash experts, you can read all about that. Definitely check that out. There'll be a huge component of this audience that'll be in the podcasting space. And if you think becoming a powerful speaker happens by accident, you're wrong. You need to check that out. Links will be listed below. Jim, do you have any concluding thoughts for our amazing audience today? Yes. Every single day of your life, ask this question. 
how would the person I'd like to be do the things I'm about to do? How would the person I'd like to be do the things I'm about to do? Which would mean you were thinking as the future you, not the former you. How would the better version of me handle this situation? Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Cathcart. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com